You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. As I'm sure you're well aware, um, there is not a lot of news going on right now. However, I do want to try to keep everybody up to uh, date when things arise, and that includes around the NFL, in fact, especially around the NFL at this time of year. But uh, just a couple reports here. Um, the Ravens apparently are expected to sign Julio Jones. I don't know how many Packer fans are still holding out, hoping, praying that um, Julio or somebody's going to come to Green Bay. But uh, this report, the Athletics' Jeff Zrebiak believes the Ravens will sign a veteran free agent wide receiver, quote, at some point this offseason. With no receiver death behind number one uh, wideout Rashad Bateman, Baltimore will probably make a move for one of the remaining free agent receivers in the next month. Julio Jones, 33, would be a sensible addition to the receiver-hungry roster, even though another injury marred season in Tennessee last year. Jones has played 19 of a possible 33 games over the past two seasons while battling a never-ending string of soft-tissue injuries. He managed one touchdown on 31 regular season receptions with the Titans' run-heavy offense. Free agent wideouts include Will Fuller, T.Y. Hilton, Cole Beasley, Deshaun Jackson, Odell Beckham, Emmanuel Sanders, and D.D. Westbrook. So it's obviously not a, a, um, a given. In fact, the Athletics' Jeff Zrebiak never, as far as I can tell, never even mentioned Julio. It just seems to be sort of a uh, conclusion that was drawn. I kind of hope it is. It has nothing to do with the Packers, but I want to see what the contract is. I just want to see what the holdup has been. Plus, then you get the interviews, and maybe you can kind of get some more insights from Julio about who you've talked to and what the conversations have been and why it's taken so long, etc., etc. I guess at this point, I just want some behind-the-scenes information on what's been going on. Because, again, my assumption is Julio Jones wants to get paid based on his name. And teams are looking at him going, well, basically what I just read to you. 33, injury-riddled, no real production last year. And there's just a massive gap between what he thinks he's worth based on his name and his production, you know, several years ago. And the team's looking at what he will be this year. And ultimately, I think Julio's betting on the fact that if he holds out, eventually he'll be able to get the money that that uh, he wants, or at least a little bit closer to it. Um, He kind of worked against himself initially by not signing, because now there's less needy teams. But as the season rolls on and as injuries occur, teams will be once again more desperate because the need for wide receiver will go up, and the pool of wide receivers has gone down because other guys are going to get picked through that list that I had mentioned, T.Y. and Odell and all those guys. And so there there should be a slight uptick in the market, but he's going to have to wait for that. And there's risk to that too. You don't want to end up having had sat an entire year, you know? And now you're 34, you took a year off, and prior to that you weren't very good. Now you have very, very little value. So we'll see. It's assumed to be Julio, but, you know, Julio could very well just keep himself out of the market just by refusing to accept that he's not worth what he thinks he's worth. Um, some pretty com- pretty funny comments from Trey Waynes that I saw uh, this morning. Trey Wayne says he is done playing football. 
just want to read this because, again, it's funny. Former Minnesota Vikings cornerback Wayne's 30 next month was the 11th overall pick in the 2015 draft by the Vikings, but never landed a second contract in Minnesota and spent the last two seasons with the Bengals. He started 79 career games, breaking up 43 passes and intercepting seven. He missed 28 of 33 games the last two years in Cincinnati. He says, quote, honestly, in my head, I'm done, Wayne said Monday. Quote, I'm not officially doing it just because I don't give a expletive. Wayne seems like he'd be open to keep playing, but hasn't drawn any interest after being released in March. Does it seem like he'd be open to keep playing? I can't imagine that's a real big sales pitch for yourself. A lot of teams just wanting to bang down the door. The guy has such a lack of motivation, he's basically telling people I'm done, and it hasn't come across the wire because I haven't told anybody because I don't care enough to. Just not answering my phone anymore. I'm just walking away. And I tell you what, man, the Packers, you know, prior to Jair having a real bad track record with corners was pretty well known, right? We kept swinging, especially early on, first round, second round, etc., and we just kept missing. The Minnesota Vikings are another team um, that just have had terrible luck trying to find corners, as well as, you know, offensive linemen and most other positions. It's a little unfair. I just felt like making fun of them. In other news that means almost nothing, ESPN's Jeremy Fowler reports the Bears are encouraged by Justin Fields' improved mechanics, including a quicker release. Fowler said Chicago coaches have noticed an improvement in Fields' accuracy in throwing on the move, too. Quote, the Bears are excited for offensive coordinator Luke Getze's system, which should give Fields more space to operate, Fowler added. Fields' long wind-up throwing motion was widely criticized in the lead-up to the 2021 NFL Draft, and his slow release was evident throughout his rookie season. I don't know what that word is in there for, but... I'm not going to read it, because that sentence made sense up to that point. I'm just going to pause there for a second. I'm not saying the guy isn't going to be improved, right? Better offensive scheme, better system, second year, improved mechanics, all that. Of course, that's going to help. Plus, there's no more really where else for him to go but up. Granted. I do find it a little bit odd that the things that they're improving are things that they said that he was criticized for in the draft. Because it goes on to say... uh, he was inaccurate through much of his rookie campaign, finishing the season with the league's sixth worth completion rate over expected, all that stuff. But but the things he's fixing are issues that they saw back in college. But even with those issues, he was expected to be better than he is. In other words, it's hard to get from the point where you look at it and say, these issues clearly are the reason why he's as bad as he is. Now they're fixed, therefore he should be better. If those things pointed to him being a bad quarterback, he wouldn't have been drafted where he was drafted. And remember he went a lot later than he was expected to go. So it just feels to me more like um, trying to make something out of nothing. A minor issue in college that nobody really seemed to care about in the draft, we're suddenly going to pretend like now that that little thing is fixed, everything's better. Because I'm to say he was solid on downfield throws. Only 11 quarterbacks had higher completion rate in attempts and more than 20 yards. Field's main fantasy appeal in what should be an atrocious Chicago offense lies in his rushing ability. The uber-athletic quarterback should be a priority later round selection because he offers tremendous rushing upside. And that'll be kind of interesting too um, because they are bringing in, again, that sort of Matt LaFleur offense, but as I said, you can't just take what Matt LaFleur does and plug it in. You have to tailor it to your specific offense, and the main driver of any offense is the quarterback, and there is no bigger difference in quarterbacks than Aaron Rodgers and Justin Fields. And so I, I think it could be interesting. What does a Matt LaFleur offense look like with a dynamic rusher at quarterback that maybe isn't the greatest passer in the world? And does this first-year offensive coordinator have the ability to draw up this brand-new offense? 
because there, there isn't a, a lot of um, history behind this. I mean, how many times has an offense like this run with this style of quarterback? I mean, you got Trey Lance now who, you know, Shanahan will probably pave the way, but you can't wait to see what he does this year before you figure out what you're going to do this year. Um, there was that one year with RG3 where he was really good back in Washington. Otherwise, I, I don't know. But, um, you know, whatever. Fields looks good. Pretty classic off-season commentary. It's another um, general NFL note that I found kind of interesting, at least not specifically what they're trying to tell us, but, you know, the, the sort of side facts that I find interesting. The Athletics' Harif, Arif Hassan believes increased passing volume for the Vikings' offense will be a boost for K.J. Osborne. Hassan said Osborne, in a modern post-Mike Zimmer Minnesota offense, could be a high-end flex player and a smite Smart bi-week fill-in. We're talking mostly fantasy, but whatever. It's still football. Osborne in 21 caught 50 of his 82 targets for 655 yards and 7 touchdowns, and the number 3 target behind Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. In 7 2021 games in which Osborne saw at least 6 targets, he averaged 4.73 receptions, 67 yards, and 0.73 touchdowns, blah blah blah, more fantasy nonsense. More three receiver sets for the Vikings under new head coach Kevin O'Connell should make Osborne fantasy relevant in deeper formats. He would presumably Minnesota's be Minnesota's wide receiver too in the case of an injury to Thielen or Jefferson. Well, duh. Here, here, and I've already mentioned this before, and maybe it'll be great for the Vikings, but I just, I don't know. There seems to be a general feeling that if what Zimmer was doing was bad, then doing the opposite will be good. And I just kind of struggle with that. I understand what they were doing wasn't great, although it wasn't terrible. I think their offense was pretty good. It almost seems to me like the offense wasn't bad, it was executed poorly, because we've seen them perform at a really high level, right? So we look at 2021 and we say, yeah, the offense was was kind of bad, or, or at least mediocre, which isn't good enough. But the year before that, they were fourth in yards. The year before that, they were eighth in points. So, you know, you know they're not the number one team in the league, but the, the point is the drop in production, I don't think you can just look at it and say oh, that's because Zimmer's scheme doesn't work which is not even necessarily Zimmer's scheme, but whatever, the, what, what Zimmer wanted to do. I think the, the biggest hang-up that I have, the reason why I'm struggling with it is, again, we're taking this sort of, I don't want to say run first, because nobody's really run first, except maybe the Ravens or something, I don't know. But this run-heavy offense that has two wide receivers and a running back and some tight ends and moves down the field that way. And you're going to take snaps away from Dalvin Cook, run the ball less, put a third wide receiver out who's not great, and you're going to try to spread the ball around. I don't know, man. I feel like you got three pretty dynamic weapons, and I kind of want to focus on those three. I know that's sort of a simplistic way of looking at it, and there's other things as far as opening things up, which could help the run game, which could help the other wide receivers. I just I just feel like this is reactionary. And I, I also feel like, and I, and I would guess that the coaches and the GM and everything agree, that... Um, the team was built to run the way Zimmer wanted it to run. And so you're kind of square peg round holing it, at least until you can kind of get the pieces that you need and want. And then, and then the third concern is that Cousins has been playing at an extremely high level. And again, I, I don't think that gets enough attention. He's not a perfect quarterback, but he's certainly underrated. He has been one of the more consistently solid, good, at times extremely good quarterbacks in the NFL, and he's done it for several years. I don't know for sure 
that you can just say no matter what he's always going to operate at that level and so you've got this quarterback and you know I'm sure getting a new quarterback is in the works anyways but just looking at 2022 what are the odds that changing up this offense to add a less productive wide receiver to take snaps away from your dynamic running back and change the scheme on your quarterback that's been performing at a high level what are the odds that that's going to be a benefit for your offense certainly could happen but it just doesn't feel like a winning recipe to me but again maybe long-term strategy this is the better way to go we got to get away from the old ways move into the new ways and it's just going to take a year or two to kind of get some new players and kind of get the guys that we need to make this work including potentially possibly probably a new quarterback at some point um, I do have the stat of the day which um, I apologize to the social media folks because I probably didn't coordinate this well enough I had planned on giving him a stat to put the graphics out there but also do this on the podcast and I maybe forgot to relay that to him so I hope I'm not spoiling this for everybody but anyways I do want to go over it because it just is really quite incredible the 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 question that was put on social media is who are the top five receivers with the most 10 plus reception games in Packers history and there's a couple different ways to kind of look at this that really just show how absolutely dominant Devontae Adams is as a Packers wide receiver and just a wide receiver in general and also keep in mind his career is not over it is as a Packer but it's not over so first of all I guess I'm just kind of stunned to see how rare it is for players to get 10 receptions in a game uh, only 22 receivers have ever had that that honor as a Packer ever only 11 have had more than one and by the way this isn't just wide receivers this is any player because Dorsey Levins is on this list with one James Jones Dorsey Levins Don Beebe Edgar Bennett Vince Workman uh, Jerry Ellis Eddie Lee Ivory Ken Payne Max McGee Billy Houghton and Bob Mann all had one Ty Montgomery, Javon Walker, Antonio Freeman, who we talked about with how incredible he was for a time, Robert Brooks, we talked about how incredible he was for a time, and James Lofton all had two. Only six players had three or more. Only six in NFL history. And I, I, I was looking at this saying, this isn't true, this is fake. I had to go back and try to find more, and I just I couldn't find them. Players with three, Don Hudson, Randall Cobb, Jordy Nelson. And that's when I was like, there's no way. Randall Cobb had so many high-volume games. Jordy Nelson had so many. There's no way. And I went back and looked at Randall Cobb, and I just haven't found. I mean, I, I just went back, and um, I think over the last three years, he's had one. So maybe if I kept going back, I don't know. But the point is, shocking. Then you've got two guys that have taken a big jump. So, again, it has been one, two, and three so far. Sterling Sharp and Donald Driver each had seven. So really just and remember this isn't necessarily directly correlated to quality although you know you're probably a pretty good receiver if you have this many receptions but there are also guys like Donald Driver who are very good but also was just a reception monster right he he's the guy that would get not necessarily big targets but he would just suck up tons and tons of receptions Devontae Adams at number one didn't have eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen or fifteen didn't have 16 or 17 or 18. He had 19 games with 10 or more receptions. Remember, Jordy Nelson had three. And even if you want to look at it and say, yeah, well, Sterling Sharp would have had more if he had a longer career. Sterling Sharp was over six years. In six years, he had seven 10-plus reception games. 
Devontae Adams had 19 in seven years. It's one more year than Sterling Sharp. And so then the question I had from there was, this is such a outlier of a number. Where does he rank just in NFL terms? And granted, you know, as passing has gone on more and more, you're going to see this as more of a modern thing. If you look at all the top guys, they're, they're mostly younger players, with the exception, obviously, of Jerry Rice, and he's even further down this list. But if you look at 10-plus um, reception games, 12 in NFL history have 15 or more. At 15, you got Tony Gonzalez and Reggie Wayne. Marvin Harrison had 16. Jerry Rice and Larry Fitzgerald each had 17. Wes Welker and Michael Thomas had 18. Uh, Devontae is tied for third with Julio Jones and Brandon Marshall. By the way, if you're concerned about the years that I listed, because I'm not sure that those are absolutely correct in terms of how many years each guy played, those are the years that the span in which they had 10 plus. So for example, Julio Jones here is from 2011 to 2019. Well, why isn't he listed for more years? Because he didn't have any 10 plus reception games outside of those years, just so we're clear. Anyways, the only two with more, Andre Johnson from 2004 to 2014 had 22 And Antonio Brown from 2013 to 2021 had 23. And again, Devontae's not done. If he gets four 10-plus reception games this year, he'll be number one, tied for number one. And the fact that he wants to play for many, many more years, unless his career just kind of takes a, you know, negative turn, whether that because of quarterback play or himself or the offense or whatever, it's very likely that by the conclusion of his career, he's going to be number one in you know, 10-plus yard receptions. Because I don't think Antonio Brown is playing much more. Andre Johnson's been out of the league a long time. Julio hasn't had one since 2019. I mean, the only other active guy right now is Keenan Allen. He's at 14, and he's, you know, he's older than uh, Devontae is. Christian McCaffrey is at 11, right? Nobody's even really close. So pretty wild stat there for Devontae Adams. Very rarely in NFL history has there been an offense so reliant on a wide receiver as Devontae Adams, which I know is not going to make anybody feel great. Probably not a stat that anybody wanted to hear this morning, but I found it, and I thought it was cool for Devontae, so I read it. But anyways, why don't we take a break, and we'll come back and talk about more stuff. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. 
And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Real quick, just wanted to comment on uh, Kurt Bankert's comments about his release. I just thought considering some of the, you know, I don't want to say rumors, but some of the negative feelings people have toward the front office, whether they're true or exaggerated or whatever, it's still kind of important that, um, well, you, you don't want to spiral. You know, th- there was some negative stuff with Aaron Rodgers and some worry about Devontae maybe not wanting to be with the Packers and Zadarius maybe being upset with the Packers and the front office and all that. So I guess I'm just kind of sensitive to that. And you want the players to kind of buy in and be fans of the coaching staff, the locker room, the front office, etc. So anyways, um, quote by Mr. Kurt Bankert about his release. This comment is about Brian Gutekunst, by the way. He says, The way he did it and went about it, mad respect for him and for the window he cut me in, to give me an opportunity to go somewhere and compete for another job to make the 53, knowing there was no chance to make the 53 here. Respect the expletive out of that, Bankert said, during a stream on Twitch on Sunday. It says the Packers cut Bankert on Friday while he said he definitely didn't expect it and was truly surprised. He understands the process from the team side and is thankful for the timing. He went on to say he could have kept me around for five weeks and then cut me as soon as I showed up for training camp or kept me around for preseason, giving me a quarter a game, if that, and then cut me, Banker said. I'm just excited to see what's next. He also went on to essentially say that he knew that this was coming, saying that with Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love there, he didn't really have a path to the 53-man roster. He says there was no room to grow in a sense. This gives me a chance. He goes on to say, I know at the end of the preseason what it was going to look like. Thankfully, they did me a solid and didn't waste any time. I knew at the end of the preseason I was going to get cut. There's no room for me on that roster for an extra quarterback on the 53. That's kind of an odd statement. I mean, I guess it's not. You know, ultimately, if you assume they're only going to carry two quarterbacks, which I guess you can probably assume, then you know you're probably not going to make it. And... um but still, I mean, that situation was the same last year. I guess he doesn't want to get cut and then stashed on the 53. I don't know. But either way, it makes sense. You don't have a path even to the number two quarterback spot. And so while I have no illusion that the, the Packers didn't do this necessarily just for his good, in other words, they saw how good he was, and they're like, dude, you, you're way too good to be a number three. We're just going to do you a solid and let you go. It's still doing him a solid to let him go. And not only is that good for Kurt Benkert, but it's, it's good good for the current players when the, when you see them do a solid for one of your I guess co-workers and you're kind of sending an emissary out to the rest of the league you know you're eventually going to be trying to work with other players out there and, and players want to go to places where they feel that there's good management and people that are going to take care of you and so by sending Bankert out and again they probably didn't plan all this out but it still just points to this being a good move to have a player get released and say they really did solid by me they they you know they try to do what's best for me it's not going to hurt in terms of at some point wanting to go out and find players to feel like this is a good organization to play for he ended that by saying i'm going to miss green bay i'm not going to lie which obviously anyways moving off of that and i wish i had saved where i saw it i forgot to do that it was an article of some kind i don't know but there was something in there essentially just talking about you know replacing Devonte adams and, and who's going to be the guy that you can rely on on third down and all that kind of stuff and um, it was made, again, as just sort of a general comment, but it kind of got my gears turning a little bit. Who is the Packers' third-down guy? And again, I, I kind of expected it to just be, you know, Lazard or, or whoever, or just, just 
didn't necessarily expect anything super crazy to find, but I went over to uh, my good friends over at the SIS and whatnot. I looked at third and fourth down, but also wanted to refine it a little bit more because, you know, not all third and fourth downs are created equal. I did want to see, you know, um, ones that ended up being first down so you could see production. Kind of can do that, kind of can't, but we'll get there. But I also wanted to eliminate a few other things because, you know, third or fourth down and 20, 25, 30, not only are those unlikely to be converted type plays, you know, you might do a draw or a screen or some other kind of stupid stuff, but it's also going to be very heavily geared toward MVS or, or Devante probably because you're taking shots down the field. I'm, I'm more interested in sort of the third and, it could be third and long, but third and manageable, I guess. Technically third and manageable is probably what, like third and seven-ish. But just in terms of the playbook is largely open. Any of the receivers could be the target with these. So I brought it down to no more than 15 yards. Could have gone down to 10, but I don't know. I didn't want to make the window too small. And I also bumped it up to five yards because I feel like under five yards, you're dealing with a lot of Aaron Jones and all that kind of stuff. So I just looked at between five and 15 yards and you can move this around. It doesn't change the needle all that much, but I, I kind of just wanted a specific picture and to see what the Packers did in that picture. So third or fourth down with five to 15 yards to go. Now, I also want to give you this picture because the percentages matter. Um, just overall, just throughout the season, if you look at targets, Devontae Adams had 171 targets, Aaron Jones 74, Alan Lazard 60, MVS 49, Randall Cobb 39, A.J. Dillon 37, Josiah DeGuara 33, and on and on and on. So the order of, of targets is Devontae, then Aaron Jones, then Lazard, then MVS, then Randall Cobb. So that's sort of the order that you start with. When you look at this right away, you see a discrepancy. Um, everything is basically exactly in order, except the number five guy moves up to the number two spot. So instead of Devontae, Jones, Lazard, Scantling, and Cobb, it goes Devontae, Cobb, Jones, Lazard, and MVS. Cobb is that guy. Devontae Adams had 25 targets, Randall Cobb had 13, Aaron Jones 12, Lazard 11, MVS 10. And bear in mind, this is in less games. Devontae did this in 16 games. Randall Cobb did it in 12. Jones, 14. Lazard, 15. MVS, 11. One of the obvious reasons why, look at catchable compared to receptions. MVS caught all four of his catchable receptions. Alan Lazard, 7 catchable, 5 receptions. Jones, 10 catchable, 6 receptions. Devontae, 18 catchable, 15 receptions. Randall Cobb, of those 13 targets, 9 of them were catchable, 9 of them were caught. It's reliability. And then, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of surprised by this because my, my memory is just failing me. I feel like I don't remember this very much. I just remember Randall Cobb didn't have a massive role. But in those exact situations, how many first downs um, were gotten by guys? Amari Rogers had one. Josiah DeGuara had one. Robert Tunyon had two. MVS had three. Alan Lazard had four. Randall Cobb had eight. Devontae had 12. The fact that Randall Cobb, who had so many less targets, opportunities, played so many less games, but still, you know, again, in these situations, third and fourth down, five to 15 yards to go, Rodgers threw the ball to Randall Cobb, as far as being catchable, nine times, he caught all nine, and eight of them went for first downs. It's pretty remarkable. And it kind of makes me wonder, as far as moving forward, you know, we talk about it Lazard a lot. We talk about the potential of Sammy Watkins and Christian Watson. I don't know that it's really being talked about enough, the potential for Randall Cobb. If what we're talking about, and, and you know, Aaron even pointed to it himself, 
I like production over, um, what is the word? Potential. I knew it was a P word. Gotta have the alliteration. Well, again, production is Sammy, potentially, if unless he means production with him. It means Randall, and it means Lazard. But Devante wasn't just about talent, it was about trust. And the fact that in the most critical situations, the guy that he trusted the most, potentially, or at least on par with Devante, was Randall Cobb, really makes me wonder in this situation how much he's going to want to lean on Randall. And you can see the connections there. Again, that there weren't a lot of opportunities. But when he went to Randall, and when he threw a good ball, Randall was there, he caught the ball, he executed, he got the first down. Now, ability is going to be a part of this. But again, just a, a reminder of guys like Robert Brooks. The seeming ability wasn't necessarily there. But it's a matter of the, the, the passes are going to go somewhere. And if the connection is there, you know it's hard to stop. You don't have to be perfect. You know, your, your speed doesn't have to be blazing anymore. Your, your routes don't necessarily have to be completely crisp and perfect. You need the timing with Aaron Rodgers so that when you come out of your break, the ball is there. And I think they, they have or can have that level of connection, that sort of mind meld that Rodgers has crushed so many people with by just melding with guys like Jordy and with Devontae. And so obviously we're still talking about contributions from Lazard, Watkins if he makes the team, Christian Watson, Dobbs, whoever, Amari, DeGuara, Mercedes, Tunyon when he gets back. But the question of who's going to be that, that sort of number one reliable target, you know, it doesn't have to be a deep shot or whatever, but if, if there's a guy that's going to get 10 receptions, who's it going to be? Up to this point, I think I would have considered Lazard, but I think Randall Cobb makes a lot of sense. Something to consider anyways. And again, even if you bump it down, it does change things a little bit, but not entirely. If you go from 0 to 15 yards to go, and these are all passing plays, so it's not like, you know, rushing is going to impact this at all. Um, Randall Cobb goes up to 21. He's still second. Uh, Lazard is at 20. Aaron Jones is at 19. So everybody, it closes the gap quite a bit. Um, so on these short yardage things, you're looking more at Lazard. And, and, and again, the reason for that is because you're dealing with more screen type things. You know, the, the screen to Alan Lazard and hoping he can push his way for a yard makes perfect sense. Same with MVS, who's at 18. Aaron Jones with his screen passes and all that stuff. So at the line of scrimmage type stuff is more of um, Lazard, Aaron Jones. But still, Randall Cobb is up to 21 now. 13 catchable targets on 21, which is pretty remarkably low, but he caught 11 of those, and 10 of the 11 went for first downs. And again, maybe all we're talking about is a third down specialist, and there's really nothing more to read into this. It's entirely possible, but again, it's worth considering. Finally, the last thing I wanted to bring up, and, and again, I've, I've talked about this before at least once, possibly twice, I don't know, but there's just been so much talk about the defense in particular. Um, some good, some bad. I saw an article yesterday, something about pump the brakes or whatever. Um, but a couple things that, that came to mind. Number one is the importance of defense, but specifically looking at the cornerback group that we've got, the DB group that we've got. I saw PFF put out another article, and they've done several of these. But it really just highlights how much the statistics point in the direction of coverage being more important than pass rush. Obviously, both of them are incredibly important. It's going to be harder to win without a good pass rush. But the fact that that is probably going to be the, the core of our defense with also having potentially a solid pass rush group is sort of the first thing that gives me confidence that this is going to be a much improved defense. And the reason that's important is because, as I've said now a thousand times, the wide receiver room is not going to get better without Devontae. Not today, anyways. 
that doesn't mean the team can't get better. Also doesn't even mean necessarily that the passing game can't improve. That's possible. But I'm, I'm not even saying, I'm just talking about could the team possibly get better. And I just want to remind everybody about something. And I, I know Mr. Numberman kind of blew me up for this. But I'm going to bring it up again just because it's just sitting here, right? Statistics will tell you that offense is more important than defense. That's fine. But at least insofar as the Packers are concerned, if you want to find the seasons that Packer fans like the most, that got us the most excited, that got us the most optimistic, look at offense. If you want to find the years in which the Packers closed the deal and won the championship, look at defense. If you go over to Football Outsiders, you look at the top games or the top seasons based on offensive DVOA. What's at the top of the list? It's everybody's favorite seasons, 2011, 2020, 2014, right? 1995, great year, 2021. The optimism, the excitement, this is our year, all that stuff. However, if you go over to defensive DVOA, you've got number one on the list, 1996, we won the Super Bowl. Number two is 2009, we'll get there. Number three is 2010, we won the Super Bowl. Those years that we got excited about in which we had really good offenses and everything else, they don't even show up on this list for quite a while. Because reality is the defense was just kind of bad those seasons. But I just want to read this article real quick in regard to 2009 just as kind of a refresher. Because 2009 was an incredibly promising season. And, um, you know, I I, I hate to uh, (laughs) kind of go back and do this about a season that was well over a decade ago. But this was posted by Greg Rosenthal, January 11th, 2010. The title of the article, After Further Review, Packers Got Screwed. I'm going to read it. It says, We've received more than a few emails after the aftermath of Sunday night's For the Ages battle between the Packers and the Cardinals regarding the non-call on the play that delivered victory for the home team via a sack, fumble interception, and 17-yard sprint for a score. Uh, At first, the words tuck rule dominated the discussion. Then the focal point became the blow to the head and the yanking of the face mask that Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers endured as Arizona defensive back Michael Adams collided into Rodgers. As one league source said via email, it should have been a personal foul grabbing the face mask and 15-yard penalty and first down for Green Bay. And we completely agree. The incidental face mask call disappeared a couple years ago, replaced by a rule that even minor grab of the bar attached to the helmet triggers a major infraction. Moreover, we've routinely seen quarterbacks take minor blows to the head and draw flags for roughing the passer. So what happened? Though the tuck rule didn't matter much because the ball bounced off Rodgers' foot before it was caught by Cardinals linebacker Carlos Dansby, the official undoubtedly was watching Rodgers' arm and the ball for any evidence of the convoluted mechanical process that makes a fumble not a fumble when the quarterback was in the process of moving his arm. The bigger problem is that the Fox announcers and the folks talking into their ears didn't bother to delve into the question of whether or not one... uh, of whether not one but two penalties had occurred. Joe Buck said Rodgers gets a hand to the face during the live call, but Buck and his producers blew an excellent opportunity to explain first that the tuck rule didn't matter in this case, and second that what did matter was the failure of the men in black and white to see that Adams had not only hit Rodgers in the head but also grabbed and tugged his face mask. So yes, Packer fans, you have every right to be upset. So what's the point of bringing this up? We got robbed. I've mentioned before, if there was a season in which the Packers should have won a Super Bowl, it wasn't all the seasons that everybody points to. 2014, 2011, 2020, 2021, it was 2009. And granted, that was a major implosion and failure of the Packers' defense in that game. The the defense fell apart, which I guess both works in my favor and against my favor in, in, in arguing this, as far as the importance of defense. 
And yes, it's a stretch to say we would have gone on to win the Super Bowl had that happened. We, After Arizona would have gone on to play New Orleans, who ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. So maybe it is a bit of a stretch. I don't know. But again, at least insofar as the Packers are concerned, and we, we can talk about the numbers all you want more broadly, but the fact that we're looking at all these years, all these years here in, in NFL history, and DVOA goes back to uh, 83, you look at all these years, it seems like a heck of a coincidence that if you sort by DVOA, 2000, uh, 1996 and 2010 are at the top. So I do think that's going to be crucial. I think Joe Barry and this defense getting getting back on track. It's not like if we have the top defense, we're automatically going to win. That's not the point. I, I just I don't think the Packers have ever won a Super Bowl with a bad defense. We know back in the Lombardi era, the Packers' defense was incredibly fearsome. A lot of the, the focus was on the offense and the power sweep and all that, but they had a great defense. In 1966, and granted there were a lot less teams, but still number one ranked defense, number four ranked offense. In 1967, number three ranked defense, number nine ranked offense, which again, given the amount of teams, ninth ranked offense, not great. They were number one ranked defense in terms of yards given up. Even the year prior to the Super Bowl when they won the championship, number one ranked defense, number eight ranked offense. 1962, number one in both categories. Just like in 96, they were number one offense and defense in terms of points, but in terms of yards, number five offense, number one defense. And if you're looking at DVOA, the defense is better than the offense. And then 2010, number two ranked defense, number 10 ranked offense. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on replacing Devontae. Um, you, you certainly don't want to have a bad offense, but we've been down this road many, many times. MVP quarterback, dominant offense. Defense, not super great. Even if they're great, they're great intermittently. That's 2009, right? They fell apart. So I'm not saying take any focus off the offense. What I am saying is I, I, I can't get past the thought that the difference between the same old, same old, good team, bunch of regular season wins, maybe a playoff win, but eventually a playoff exit, the difference is just a stifling defense. And we even, we've even seen that, in, including last year, because the, the defense was so inconsistent. You saw dominance but you also saw games in which they couldn't do anything and every time we dominated a team you look at it and the first thought that everybody had is this is a Super Bowl caliber team this is a team that can win it all a team that can shut out Russell Wilson and the Seahawks a team that can shut down largely the San Francisco 49ers uh, the Chiefs completely shut down the Chiefs I mean what is that that's everybody's first thought and the reality is if, if that defense can be more prevalent a defense in which you struggle to get to 20 points. It, you know, some of the some of the minor things we look at on offense aren't going to matter. Aaron Rodgers, Matt Lafleur, Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, the offensive line, Alan Lazard, Mercedes Lewis, Randall Cobb, the 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 rookies, Watkins, whatever. They're going to be able to get the points. They're going to find ways to get, you know, I mean, what what is worst case scenario? 24 points. You know, they're not getting many 30-point games these days. There's not a whole lot of 35-point blowouts. But 24, 26, 28, are you really worried they're not going to be able to do that without Devontae? It's very important, and I do think it's going to make a difference. And I understand the defense was there last year. We, we missed the offense. That's true. On some level, you got to have both. I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think the emphasis has been on offense, and I think that needs to change. We, we can't prevent... The, well, I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe there is a way to prevent it, but 
I don't know how you go about preventing these these collapses. But I think the best way to keep games from getting away from you is with a good defense, and I think that's the biggest thing. If, if the other team isn't running away from you, you're still in the game no matter what. If the other team's up 21, 21 points on you, uh, you know, the game might be over by halftime. But if it's, you know, 10-3 in the third quarter, you're, you're obviously not out of the game. Keep it in your control. Keep it in striking distance. Don't give up and keep plugging away and figure it out. So, anyways, again, I know I've talked about that already, but I wanted to reiterate that. And I never went, uh, I've had that article sitting there since forever, so I wanted to bring that up just as further evidence of my my fondness of 2009. But anyways, I got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.